0: Well, tonight we're in Psalm 47 and 48. We're going to cover two psalms tonight because they go together. They are placed in the Psalter, which is another word for psalms. They're placed in the Psalter uh, intentionally to go together. Uh, As a matter of fact, most scholars believe they go with Psalm uh, 46 as well. So 46, 47, 48 all have the same author and are bound together by the same theme. I'll talk about that in just a moment, but we're going to start in Psalm 47, Psalm 47. A couple of statements there that summarize the Psalms. If you want to know what the Psalms are about, God the true and glorious king is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence whatever the occasion in personal or community life. And so the psalms remind us that God is worthy of our praise, worthy of our trust. Uh, No matter what we're going through, God is worthy. And and then John Piper writes, the psalms are songs. Remember, they are written to be used in corporate worship. The psalms are songs. They are poems. They are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. And so I think one of the reasons that people just love the Psalms, I mean, most folks that have been walking with God for a period of time, they'll tell you they just love the Psalms. I think most of the reason that we love the Psalms is because we can connect with them. We see all different emotions. We see the gamut of different emotions through these Psalms, and we identify with that. And so they are well-loved because they point us to the one who can help us and encourage us and carry us through whatever life brings our direction. So we've come to Psalm 47, 48. I've called these psalms um, the psalms of our great king, our great king. So let me read. I'm going to read chapter 47. We'll get to 48 a little bit later in our time together, but I'm going to just read 47 to start us off. So look there with me. Psalm 47, verse 1. It says, To the choir master... A psalm of the sons of Korah. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us. The pride of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord, with the sound of a trumpet, sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises, for God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Let me pray for us. Father, we pause in these moments to lay this time before you, and we ask for your help. Lord, I pray that you'd open the eyes of our hearts by your spirit, that we would see these psalms clearly, understand them, and be moved by them, Lord, to a point of of life change, to a point of transformation. So God, would you encourage us tonight? Would you inspire us tonight? Would you challenge us tonight so that we can live, uh, Lord, more fully for your glory? we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, as I said earlier, most scholars believe that Psalms 46, 47, and 48 are meant to go together. They are unified by a common theme. And the unifying theme of these three Psalms is Zion. Sometimes called Mount Zion, referring to the city of Jerusalem where God has chosen for his presence to dwell among his people. So, for example, look in Psalm 46, we studied this last week, verse 4. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. So again, it mentions Jerusalem. And I taught you last week that probably the context of this psalm is Jerusalem was being attacked probably by the Assyrians under the leadership of Sennacherib. And God rescued his people and decimated the Assyrian army. But it mentions here the city. God is in the midst of her. Uh, the city of God, talking about Zion or Jerusalem. And then look over in chapters 47, verse 8. It doesn't mention Zion explicitly, but it says God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The, the Ark of the Covenant in the temple was uh, often called God's throne, where he would come down and dwell among his people. He would manifest his presence there. And so probably a reference to Mount Zion, a reference to Jerusalem, the city of uh, in which his presence dwelt. And then in chapter 48, verse 1, it says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. So again, it's mentioning the city. And the entire psalm, chapter 48, is about the city. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is to the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion is the far north, the city of the great king. And so again, there's a common theme in these three psalms. Mount Zion, the city of God, his presence dwelling there among his Uh, So we'll talk more about that as we unpack this, Uh, but I want you to see sort of the main point of Psalm 47, verse 1. Here it is. These Psalms, Psalm 47, 48, these Psalms call for exuberant praise. Exuberant praise. By exuberant, I mean passionate, heartfelt, wholehearted worship. Look what it says there in verse 1. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. And then fast forward down to verse 6. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises for God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. And so the idea here is is that God is worthy of our worship, and because He's so worthy, we should sing praises to His name. We should worship Him with great um, fervor. It says there in Psalm 48, verse 1, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. And so our praise should be commensurate with His greatness. And, and we see this theme throughout the Psalms. And so, I've got a question for you. Would you characterize your praise, your worship? This could be individually, in your time alone with the Lord. It could be as a family, when you have family church. It could be as a church family, when we gather together corporately for worship. Would your praise be characterized as exuberant praise, fervent praise, passionate praise, where you are Fully engaged with your mind and with your heart, with your will, you are fully engaged uh, with the uh, Lord. We've got to be honest, a lot of our a lot of the time when Christians gather, it, it doesn't sound a lot like Psalm 47. You know, shouting, clapping, loud voices, praises. We we don't see uh, many reflections of that in contemporary worship in our day and time. And so these Psalms call for exuberant praise. So, if you've lost your shout, right? Like you got nothing to clap about, nothing to sing about, if you've lost the exuberance of your worship, all right? These Psalms remind us why we should worship with exuberance, why we should worship with passion. So, let me give you five reasons that we should worship fervently, all right? Number one, Our God reigns. Our God reigns. Look in verse 2 of Psalm 47. We'll back to verse 1. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared a great king over all the earth. So notice it mentions here the reason we should clap, the reason we should shout reason we should sing is because God, the Lord, the Most High, is a great king over all the earth. And notice that phrase, all the earth. You've heard me say this before. The word all is a small word with big implications, right? And so when it says that God reigns as a king over all the earth, you know what that means? It means that God reigns over all the earth. That's what it means. And that's a big deal. I mean, God is calling the shots. He is sovereign. He is the one who... Ruling and reigning. And sometimes, I don't know about choosing sometimes my life feels like it's out of control, or, or events around me seem like they're out of control, or circumstances seem like they're out of control. We need to remember that God is reigning over all the earth. It says over in Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It all belongs to Him. He is the great King. He is the one ruling and reigning over the universe. So why should we praise God with exuberance? Because... He reigns. He's calling the shots. He's sovereign. He is in control. And that should give you and I great comfort. Our God reigns. Now, how do we see God reigning throughout the Scriptures? Well, one way we see God reigning is by controlling the destinies of nations. It says that He puts down one ruler and raises up another. Uh the Bible says in Proverbs that the heart of kings are like, are, are like channels of water in the hands of God. He turns them whichever way he wants to turn them. And so God is reigning over uh, the earth, which means he is reigning over the kings of this earth. You might say that he is the king of kings. He, he, he's calling the shots. He is controlling world history. He is bringing it to a conclusion that will ultimately glorify him. And so we should worship with exuberance. Because our God reigns. Secondly, why should we worship with exuberance? Because our God gives us an inheritance. Our God gives us an inheritance. Look in verse 3. It says, He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. That is a reference probably to God giving the Israelites victory when they entered into the promised land. So, I'm preaching on Joshua on Sunday mornings, and we are on the front end of this story as they are going into the land, but we see here that God subdued peoples in that land, giving the land to the nation of Israel. And so he, he subdued the peoples that lived there, the nations that lived there, so he could give them the promised land. And he calls the promised land there in verse 4 our heritage. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves So the reference here is to this. Hey, we should clap our hands. We should shout with loud shouts because our God has blessed his people. He's the God of Jacob, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And he has given his people, the Jewish people, an inheritance, meaning they're the promised land. And so in that context, they're saying as God's people, we should praise him for our inheritance, for our Land. But listen, we're God's people today. We are the church. And guess what? Just like the nation of Israel, God has given us an inheritance. So for example, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to show you this. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So he's speaking of those that are redeemed, those that are saved, those that are born again. He's saying according to his great mercy, we are born again through Jesus Christ. Two, it says, verse 4, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So here's what the Bible says. If you are a Christian, if you are saved, God has an inheritance waiting for you in heaven. Your promised land, you might say. So that idea is in that old hymn, On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful lie, to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. That's the idea of First Peter Chapter One, and so if you're a Christian, the Bible says God has something waiting for you in heaven. Now, here's the question: What in the world is it? Are you interested to in know what your inheritance is waiting for you in heaven? Anybody interested? Maybe not really. Some of you, okay, yeah. Um, the answer is, we don't really know. Sorry to disappoint you, but it doesn't say. Your inheritance is ABCD. It doesn't say that, but as we put um, the scriptures together and begin to think about what heaven will be like, we kind of get a clue. For example, over in John 14 it says that, Jesus speaking, I go to prepare a place for you. Uh, The old King James says, in my Father's house are many mansions, literally many rooms. And so part of our inheritance is a place that Jesus is right now Preparing for us. I don't know what that entails. I don't know what my place is going to look like or what your place is going to look like, but it's going to be cool, right? I mean, if it's in heaven and Jesus is fixing it up, it's got to be pretty neat, right? Uh, Another part of our inheritance is um, freedom from some things. Revelation uh, 21 says that in, in heaven, there'll be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more disease, no more sickness, and so part of what it means to be in heaven is, hey, we're free from those things that weigh us down and plague us here in this life. Guess what? We'll be free from the very presence of sin in heaven. Think about that. No more sin around you. No more sin within you. Sin will be obliterated and you get to enjoy that in heaven. That'll be pretty cool, right? Aren't you, aren't you excited about the moment when you'll be free from the very presence of sin? How incredible would that be? Which means there will be no sinners around you, and and you won't stumble and fall either. Sin has been obliterated. Certainly that is part of our inheritance. Uh, Revelation 21 and 22 speak of the beauty of heaven. You know, pearly gates, streets of gold, you know, these wonderful descriptions that that defy our thoughts and imaginations, but we know it's going to be awesome. And so certainly the beauty of heaven is, is a part of what our inheritance entails. Um, But the greatest thing about heaven is this. Heaven is where the Lord is. And we get Him. We get to be in His presence forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And so I believe that when 1 Peter speaks of our inheritance, it means, hey... In this place called heaven, this promised land that we're all headed for as Christians, when we get there, we get mansions, we see streets of gold, there's no more cancer, there's no more pain, there are no more tears, there's no more sin, and guess what? You get to be in the very presence of God forever and ever and ever and ever. Listen, there's no more faith in heaven. You don't need it. Your faith will be sight. Right? You'll be in the presence of God. And so, uh, all of that, I think, is wrapped up in what First Peter calls the inheritance waiting for us. I think when the Bible speaks of our inheritance as Christians, it speaks of all that is ours in Christ. All of the spiritual blessings in eternity that are ours in Christ. A lot of things we can't even, even begin to think about. They're beyond our comprehension, but they will be ours in Christ. And so, back in Psalm 47... Hey, they're pretty excited. God gave us a promised land. He gave his people a place to dwell in and to thrive in and to serve him in and to glorify him in. And we can relate because, guess what? We have an inheritance much greater than any piece of land. Much greater than any you know, settling of a family member's will. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled. It will not fade away. It will be all that is ours, all the blessings that are ours when we get to heaven. As the old hymn says, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Amen? And so, why should we worship with exuberance? Our God reigns. Our God gives us an inheritance. If I had a... An issue, and, and I'm going to say this, and you'll probably give me about a hundred examples where I'm wrong. So if you think of some things that, that prove me wrong with the statement I'm about to make, just keep it to yourself. <laughs> no, better yet, you can email me, okay? Frank at longviewpoint.org. <laughs> but this is just anecdote, just kind of thinking out loud. Um, let me say it a positive way. I think we need to be careful as Christians as the church today that we are singing songs about heaven. If if there's something I don't see a lot in some of the the modern worship music, and again, you can correct, you'll probably think of about 15 examples right after I say the statement, you don't see a lot of emphasis on our future hope, on our future inheritance. That's important. Um, As a matter of fact, over in Colossians it says, chapter 3, set your mind on things above not on things that are on the earth. To have that eternal perspective, that perspective of hope and joy of what's to come that keeps us keeping on through the hard times, that's very, very important. And so we need to make sure, whether you think of examples or not, we need to make sure that we are singing about, thinking about, preaching about, rejoicing in our inheritance, waiting for us in eternity. So, why should we worship with exuberance? Our God reigns, our God gives an inheritance. Third. Why should we worship with exuberance? Our God gives victory. Back in Psalm 47, Psalm 47, He says, "God, verse five, has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Uh, scholars believe if this is a companion psalm of Psalm 46, this verse probably refers to God coming to the rescue of Israel. In Jerusalem, when they were surrounded by Sennacherib's army, the Assyrians and says in Isaiah and, and uh, uh, second kings, God went out and decimated the Assyrian army. and they think that this, this going up with a shout, the sound of a trumpet, which is probably a, um, uh, an allusion to the trumpet that would blow to send forth troops in battle, that God had gone out for his people and defeated the Assyrians and so just a reminder that God gives victory. It says there in verse 12, walk about Zion of chapter 48, walk about Zion, go around her number of towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God. In other words, you shouldn't try to attack God's city. He's going to protect his city. Why? He is a victory giving God. And so the people of god could rejoice in the victory of god and because god was giving them victory they would clap their hands and shout with a loud voice and sing songs of praise and in similar fashion you and i can identify because we have been given great victory by god for example turn over to 1 corinthians chapter 15 1 corinthians 15 love this passage Verse 50. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does a perishable inherit the imperishable. In other words, we're not going to heaven in, in these bodies. These bodies that we have right now are perishable. Can I get an amen? Uh, I turned forty last year, and out of nowhere, I started having t- tooth sensitivity. And now I got to use like Sensodyne. I'm Like, where'd that come from? And you know, it's just, it just, you know, your body just be- continues to to decay and and is is perishable, right? It's not going in the right direction, which would be very um, disheartening if it weren't for what he says next. Behold, I tell you mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So this perishable body that is just decaying and wasting away, it will be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, what? Imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body, the one that's wasting away, must put on the imperishable. I'm going to get a brand new glorified body that doesn't decay. And this mortal body that is headed towards my appointment with death must put on immortality. In other words, we don't have to fear death. Our bodies won't decay. The glorified bodies. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on, the immo- on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So when we all get together in heaven... And we all got our new bodies. We're going to say that's pretty cool. Hey, I like my new body. I like your new body. You like my new body. we we're, we're going to be we're going to be in heaven, and we're going to realize there's victory. No more mortality. It says the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Now watch this through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to me. The only way to experience victory in this life and in the next life is through Jesus. There's there's, there's no other way to beat the system. There's no other way to make it. The only way to have victory over sin and death and heartache and brokenness and, and mortality, the only way to have victory is through Jesus Christ. There's just no other way. He's the only one that saves. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Immediately you think it sounds like victory in Jesus. And so our God gives us victory through Jesus Christ. And we should rejoice in that. The fact that we are... Listen, I, I, I played sports growing up, and I coached my kids in sports. And I'll just be honest with you, I like to win. Um, you know, even when the, kid, when the kids are real little playing, they don't keep score. But guess what? I I am. The kids don't know have a clue what the score is. I know what the score is. I'm trying to have more points than the other team. I just I like to win. How about you? I just I think I just like to win. If you're gonna go out and play, you might as well try to win, right? That's just a personal thing. Y'all pray for me. But um I mean, it feels good to win. Victory. And listen to me, you and I need to remember, especially when times are tough, we need to remember that we're on the winning team. Amen? victory in Jesus Christ. So we can relax. We have victory. I remember years ago before we had kids, we were um watching a couple kids for this family that we knew. Um and uh Claire and I went over there and um it happened to be the weekend of the Florida Florida State football game. And so Claire was watching the kids while I was watching football. And uh this couple went out on a little date night, and, and, and Claire was playing with the kids, and I was watching the Florida-Florida State football game. And uh, it was close, back and forth, back and forth, but Florida State won the game. All right, victory, right? They won the game. Well, this guy uh, that had gone out on a date with his wife, we were watching their kids, uh, he, had, he, he was a Florida Gator fan, he had recorded the game on, the, on his VCR. That dates me there. Uh, he, had, he had recorded the game. And so when he got back, okay, before Claire and I leave, he's in a hurry. He puts on the game, okay, from the very beginning. So we're watching the game with two totally different mindsets, right? I knew Florida State won. So I'm back, I'm relaxed, you know. Watch every enjoying it. You know, he's like, oh, ah, you know, he's you know, every play, every call, you know. Uh, we watch it in a totally different way. Why? Because I knew my team had won. And that changed my perspective. And if you and I will remember that we are on the winning team, we have victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what life brings our direction, we're on the winning team, then that will give you the right perspective to keep on keeping on, and it should fuel your praise. Right? We're coming together week after week in corporate worship because we're celebrating victory, aren't we? We should not come week after week defeated and downtrodden. We need to realize, hey, our God reigns. He's defeated sin and death. He's on his throne. Yes, life is hard but I'm on the winning team. If you keep that perspective it will fuel exuberant praise. So, why should we worship with exuberance? Our God reigns. Our God gives an inheritance. Our God gives victory. There's a fourth reason that you and I back in Psalm 47 should worship with exuberance. It's a fourth reason you and I should worship with exuberance. It is this, our God is building a kingdom. In other words, God is up to something. He's doing something in human history. We need to realize that. There's nothing random or haphazard. God is doing something right now. And look what it says in Psalm 47, verse 6. Sing praises, sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises for God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. Now, hey, this is um, just a little extra comment as we think about the emphasis on singing praises. And this isn't directed at anybody because on Sunday mornings I sit on the front row with my back to you. So I don't know who's singing and who's not singing. All right, I'm not, so I'm not singling anybody out. Um but if you don't sing, okay, if you don't sing praises to our reigning victorious god how do you deal with verses like the ones we just read sing praises sing praises sing praises, sing praises sing praises sing praises sing praises sing praises sing praises sing praises, right it's all over the place and so listen sing god gave us music for a reason right there's a purpose behind it music gives us an outlet to express what's on our heart right to express our 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 thinking and our our feeling and And our worship music is very, very important. It's a gift from God. So, sing praises, verse 6. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Now these verses teach us that not only does God reign over the Hebrew people, the, the, the Jews, but he says that the, the princes of the peoples gather as the, people of, as the people of the God of Abraham. In other words, God has chosen the nation of Israel to be his chosen nation, but he's opened up his arms to other nations that want to come worship him too, Gentiles. And that's really good news because I'm a Gentile. And I'm glad that God's arms are open to me if I want to come and worship him in spirit and in truth. Aren't you glad of that? And so it's saying here, not only does God reign over his people, the Jews, but God is building a kingdom made up of Jews and Gentiles, princes from other nations, other peoples. He is building this kingdom. Kingdom. That's why Jesus said over in Matthew 28, Make disciples of all the peoples, all the people groups of the earth. Every tribe, every tongue, every language, every ethnicity. And so our God is building a kingdom. That's what God is doing right now in human history. God is busy building a kingdom. If you want to sum up the work of God, he's building a kingdom. Listen to what James Montgomery Boyce writes. In this age, God is building his kingdom by calling out a people to himself. They are from every imaginable people, nation, condition, in life, and race. Americans and Africans and African Americans. Tribal people, street people, and sophisticated urban dwellers. Working men and men without work. Judges and those who have been judged. All types of people. And he is turning them into men and women in who the kingdom of Jesus Christ is present. And in whom his loving, winsome, and upright character can be seen. There is nothing in life more important or more wonderful than belonging to that kingdom. So God's building a kingdom of people, and if you want to be a part of that kingdom, with the work of God active in you, you've got to come into that kingdom through Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 3, talking to Nicodemus? He said, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to be saved to be a part of the kingdom. But to be a part of the kingdom is glorious, because when you're a part of the kingdom... You are a subject of the King of Kings. And he's working in you and giving you inheritance and giving you victory and blessing you. Our God is building a kingdom of people. This next statement comes from Kendall Easley. He was my professor in seminary. And I believe this is one of the best one-sentence summaries of the Bible that I've seen. How if someone don't look at it right now, look up at me for a second. If someone said, Hey, tell me what the Bible's about in one sentence. That'd be a big task, wouldn't it? I think this is a great summary of the entire Bible and a summary of what God is doing in human history. Now, I think I have it in memory. here we go. The Lord God, through his Christ, is graciously building a kingdom. Is that what it says? Graciously. Now, it's important that this is grace. God doesn't have to do this. He doesn't have to build a kingdom and allow us into it. right? He's doing it out of his grace. We don't deserve it. You and I don't deserve to be a part of his kingdom. We deserve hell. Right? So, the Lord God through his Christ is graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people. So you have to be saved, born again to be in the kingdom. The Lord God through his Christ is graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people for their own joy and for his own glory. Is that right? And so, that pretty much sums it up. Lord God, through His Christ, graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people. For their joy, when we get in on this kingdom, it gives us great joy and peace and contentment. We find our joy in the Lord. And ultimately, God gets glory as His kingdom expands and He changes lives and changes nations. His glory spreads. And Habakkuk says one day, Habakkuk 2, that the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. I can't wait for that day. The Bible says that one day... There will be people from every tribe, Revelation 7, Revelation 9, people from every tribe, every tongue, worshiping King Jesus. How cool will that be? So that's what God's doing. God is building a kingdom, and he lets us be a part of that. He lets us into the kingdom through Jesus, and he lets us reach out to others so they can be a part of the kingdom too. Our God is building a kingdom, and that should cause you and I to live and worship with great exuberance. Now, if you're keeping score, you're thinking, okay, it's almost 7 o'clock and he hasn't gotten through with Psalm 47 yet. So, what about Psalm 48? What are we going to do with that? Well, the, the last point is all about Psalm 48. So, we're going to handle Psalm 48 under one heading. All right? Why should we worship with exuberance? Our God reigns, our God gives an inheritance, our God gives victory, our God is building a kingdom. But, fifth and last, our God has chosen a special place. Our God has chosen a special place. Psalm 48, verse 1. Psalm of the sons of Korah. These were the worship leaders in Israel. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. It's God's city. It's the nation or the city of Jerusalem. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. And so, Sometimes you'll see Jerusalem called Jerusalem. Sometimes you'll see it called the city of God. Sometimes you'll see it called Mount Zion. It's the place where the temple was, where the holy place, the Holy of Holies, was uh, built, where the Ark of the Covenant was uh, placed, and God would allow His glory to, or, or send His glory to, to, to rest on this Ark of the Covenant among His people, His manifest glory. And so God chose a special place. Jerusalem is a very special city because God chose it to have special significance. And I've been there. And I'm just telling you, there's just something about it. How many of you have been to Jerusalem before? How many of you have been to Jerusalem? Uh, It's hard to describe, even. It's hard to describe. But there's something significant about that city. There's all sorts of clashing of world views and world religions in that city. But there's something special about it. it, You can tell that God has, has made that a special place. And so how does God relate to his special city? Well, first of all, he protects his city. He protects his city. The psalmist had experienced this. Again, speaking of probably Sennacherib. Or maybe the battle in the days of Jehoshaphat. But it says there in verse 3, Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. In other words, God has protected his city. Look what it says. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight... Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we've heard, so we've seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Selah. So he's saying, hey, when enemies tried to come and take over the city, God protected the city. Now, there were times that Jerusalem was overthrown. That's because God allowed it. God sent nations to overthrow Jerusalem because of the disobedience of his people. But Before God did that, He protected that city fiercely from enemies. So we know it's special because He protects the city. Secondly, speaking of Jerusalem, He has future plans for His city. Look in verse 8. As we've heard, so we've seen, in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. So there's a time in history where God defended Jerusalem. And then there's a time when God sent Four nations to overthrow Jerusalem. And then Nehemiah, Ezra, God allowed his people to come back and inhabit Jerusalem. And the Bible says that he's going to establish that city as his special place forever. That tells me that Jerusalem has future significance. He has future plans for it. In other words, God's not done with Jerusalem yet. Okay? God's not done with Jerusalem yet. Another thing about this city. Well, let's talk about the future plans for a city. Uh, What's God going to do? Turn to Isaiah 2. Let me show you this very quickly. I've got to show you this before we move on. Isaiah 2. Let me show you what God has planned for this city of Jerusalem in the future. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and what? Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And All the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So it's saying, hey, in the latter days, God's going to establish Jerusalem as the place of worldwide worship. And people will come from other nations to worship God in Jerusalem. That, that's going to happen. That's future tense. That's looking forward at end time scenario. You say, uh, that's pretty awesome. God's not through with Jerusalem yet. But it leads me to this third idea about God's special place. He protects his city, his future plans for his city, but third, the citizens of this city are blessed with his presence. The citizens of this city are blessed with his presence. Look over with me in Psalm 48. Psalm 48, verse 9. Look at what the psalmists write about Mount Zion and how special it was to be in that city. Psalm 48, verse 9. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion, Jerusalem, let it be glad that the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion... Go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God forever and ever, he will guide us forever. So the psalmist is saying, hey, here's the best thing about Mount Zion. Here's the thing that's most thrilling about Jerusalem. God's there. That's what he's saying. We got to be in the city where God would manifest his presence among his people. You can read about some of this over in like 1 Kings 8 when Solomon dedicates the temple. The Bible says that as they kill all these animals sacrificially and Solomon prays this prayer of dedication, the glory of the Lord, where people can see it, comes down and rests over the temple, over the Ark of the Covenant. Can you imagine being there and seeing the manifest presence of God? How incredible and thrilling and scary that would be. And so the citizens of of Zion, way back in Psalm 48, are saying, hey, God's there. That's why Zion is a special place. Now, you say, wait, I don't live in Jerusalem. And uh, I'd really like, you know, to experience God's presence. And so, does the fact that I don't live in Jerusalem mean that I don't get the same blessings that the people of God did when they lived in Jerusalem back in this day? Well, listen to what the Bible says. Turn over to Hebrews 12 with me. Hebrews 12. I want to show you why you don't have to live in Jerusalem to experience what the psalmist mentioned in Psalm 48. Hebrews 12. Look in verse 19. Verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages could be spoken to them. For they, they... could not endure the order that was given. If, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. He's talking about the people of Israel at Mount Sinai when God gave, Mount, uh, gave the Israelites the law through Moses. All right? Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston, you know what I'm talking about? Okay. But here's the difference. Here's what it means to be a Christian. Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, So even though you don't live in Jerusalem, if you are born again, you are a citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem. That's pretty cool, isn't it? So just like the people in the earthly Jerusalem in Psalm 48 got to experience the presence of God, if you're a citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem, you get the presence of God too. And it gets even better. Because one day, something special is going to happen with that heavenly Jerusalem. Turn with me to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. This is awesome. Look in verse 1. The vision that John was given, that he wrote down called the book of Revelation. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So one day, God's going to usher out the Old heaven, the old earth, what we live on now, and usher in a new heavens and a new earth. Then look what it says in verse 2. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem. Watch this. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So here's what's going to happen. When it's all said and done, the dust settles on human history. God's going to usher in a new heavens, a new earth, and the new Jerusalem, which we're a citizen of right now. If you're a Christian, you're a a citizen of the new Jerusalem. That that new Jerusalem is going to come down out of heaven and rest on the new earth, and it will be the centerpiece of worship for our great God forever. That's pretty cool, isn't it? If you're a Christian, you're in on that right now. You're a citizen of that city. Over in Philippians 3.20, it says our citizenship is in heaven. Right? Ultimately, as Christians, our citizenship is in heaven. It's in the new Jerusalem, waiting to come down one day. So the citizens of the city of Jerusalem, way back in the time of the Psalmists, they were blessed With the presence of God. They walked around the city and said, look at these citadels and these ramparts. This is where our God has chosen to dwell. And if you are a citizen of the new Jerusalem, guess what? You get the presence of God too. A relationship with him, a citizenship in that city, you get to know the Lord. So, our God has chosen a special place and the realities of the new jerusalem the realities of our citizenship should cause us to worship with exuberant praise so if uh you find yourself struggling with exuberant passionate fervent worship if your clap sounds kind of like a golf clap you know then i so uh little johnny was baptized his life has been changed Right? Or if you hadn't said amen in years, or if you don't sing, if you're not engaged in the worship of our great God, read Psalm 46, our refuge and help, a very present help in times of trouble. Read Psalm 47, clap your hands. Read Psalm 48 about the the New Jerusalem, or the Jerusalem which reminds us of the New Jerusalem. Read about our great king, these ideas that he reigns and gives inheritance and gives victory and builds a kingdom and chose a special place. These realities will fuel your worship. These psalms that all go together call for exuberant praise.